This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged presentation of Martin Luther's sermon for the 20th Sunday after Trinity. This is from the John Nicholas Lenker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text for this sermon is Matthew chapter 22, beginning at the first verse. And Jesus answered and spake in parables unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king, who made a marriage feast for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the marriage feast, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them that are bidden, Behold, I have made ready my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage feast. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his merchandise. And the rest laid hold on his servants, and treated them shamefully, and killed them. But the king was wroth, and he sent his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they that were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore unto the partings of the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage feast. And these servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was filled with guests. But when the king came in to behold the guests, he saw there a man who had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him out into the outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few chosen. Thus far our text. This gospel is a very earnest admonition, like today's epistle, to make good use of the time of the gospel, and a terrible threatening of the awful punishment that shall pass upon the secure and proud heads that despise the time of the kingdom of grace, and persecute the preaching of the gospel, and upon the false trivial spirits who bear the name of the gospel and of Christ for a show, and do not mean it in earnest. And by this gospel is well painted forth and made plain what the multitudes are who are called God's people, or the church, and possess his word, how they are and act both as to their inner nature and their outer appearance. First, God builds up his Christendom in a way that he calls it, and what pertains to its government, the kingdom of heaven, to signify that he has called and separated out of the world a people for himself here upon the earth through the word of his gospel, not to the end that it should be fitted and organized like the outer and civil government, with temporal rule, power, possessions, government, and maintenance of outward worldly righteousness, discipline, defense, peace, and so forth. For all this has already before been richly ordered, and it was commanded and put into man's rule in this life as well as he can, although this is also through sin weakened and spoiled, so that it is not as it should be, and is a poor, miserable, weak government, as weak and transient as the human body, and is able to go no farther where it is at its best than the stomach, as long as the stomach performs its functions. But above that, God has arranged and instituted his own divine government, after he revealed his fathomless grace and gave his word to prepare and gather a people 
whom he redeemed from his wrath, eternal death and sin, through which they fell into such misery, and from which they could not help themselves by any human wisdom, counsel, or power, and taught them to know him aright, and to praise and laud him for ever. Christ here calls his kingdom the kingdom of heaven, where he does not rule in a temporal way, nor deals with the things of this life, but he founded and developed an eternal, imperishable kingdom, which begins on the earth through faith, and in which we receive and possess those eternal riches, forgiveness of sins, comfort, strength, renewal of the Holy Spirit, victory and triumph over the power of Satan, death, and hell, and finally eternal life of body and soul, that is, eternal fellowship and blessedness with God. Such a divine kingdom can be governed, built up, protected, extended, and maintained only by means of the external office of the Word and of the sacraments, through which the Holy Spirit is powerful and works in the hearts, and so forth, as I have often said in speaking on this theme. But in the most lovable and comforting way, it is pictured to us here by Christ our Lord, in that he himself likens it to a royal wedding feast. When a bride was given to the king's son, and all were full of the highest joy and glory, and many were invited to this marriage feast and its joy. For this is among all the parables and pictures by which God presents the kingdom of Christ to us, a select and beautiful one, that Christendom, or the Christian state, is a marriage feast or a matrimonial union, where God himself selects a church on the earth for his son, which he takes to himself as his bride. God here by our lives and experiences will make known and reflect as in a mirror what we have in Christ, and also by the common state of marriage on earth, in which we were born and reared and now live, he delivers a daily sermon and admonition in order that we should remember and consider this great mystery, for so St. Paul calls it in Ephesians 5, that the conjugal life of a man and wife, instituted by God, should be a great, beautiful, and wonderful sign, and a tangible yet spiritual picture that points out and explains something special, excellent, and great, hidden to and inconceivable by the human reason, namely, Christ and his church. For this accompanies the marriage state, where it is worthy of the name, and may be called a truly married life, where man and wife truly live together. Firstly, true heart confidence, each in each from both sides, as Solomon in Proverbs 31, among other virtues of a pious wife, also praises this, the heart of her husband trusteth in her. That is, he entrusts to her his body and life, money, possessions, and honor. Likewise, on the other hand, the heart of the wife clings to her husband. He is her highest, dearest treasure on earth. For she expects and has in him honor, protection, and help in all times of her need. Such a completely harmonious, equal, and eternal confidence and affection are not found among other persons and stations in life. For example, between master and servant, mistress and maidservant, yea, not even between children and parents. For there the love is not like thus. Strong and perfect to one another, and an eternal union does not endure here as in the marriage state instituted by God, as the text in Genesis 2 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Out of such love and heart confidence follows now also the fellowship in all they have in common, with one another, or in all that befalls them, good or bad. 
so that each must accept it as his own or her own and add and impart help to the other with his or her means and both suffer and enjoy, rejoice and mourn together according as it may be well or ill with them. This now should be a parable or sign of the great mysterious and wonderful union of Christ and his church, whose members we all are who believe in him, and as St. Paul says in Ephesians 5, of his flesh and bones, as at creation the wife was taken from the man. It must indeed be a great fathomless and inexpressible love of God toward us, that the divine nature unites thus with us and sinks itself into our flesh and blood so that God's Son truly becomes one flesh and one body with us, and so lovingly receives us that he not only is willing to be our brother, but also our bridegroom, and turns to us and gives us as our own all his divine treasures, wisdom, righteousness, life, strength, power, so that in him we should also be partakers of his divine nature, as St. Peter says in his second epistle, chapter 1. And it is his pleasure that we should believe this, so that we may be placed in the possession of this honor and of these riches. Then we may rejoice and with all assurance take comfort in this Lord, as a bride does in the riches and honor of her betrothed. And thus his Christendom is his wife, an empress in heaven and upon earth. For she is called the bride of God who is Lord over all creatures, and she sits in the highest manner in her glory and power over sin, death, Satan, hell, and so forth. Behold, this he shows us in the everyday picture of the wedding feast, or of the married state, where we see the love and faithfulness of pious wedded persons, also in the marriage feast, in the bride and the bridegroom's joy and riches, that we learn to believe this, and that we also think that Christ's heart and mind are truly thus disposed to his bride, the church, but with far greater love, faithfulness, and grace. This he clearly shows us in his word of the gospel and by the Holy Spirit, whom he gives to his church, and prepares the glorious, joyful marriage feast, at which he is wedded to his bride, and he takes her to himself, and, to speak in our childish and human way, leads his bride to the dance as with fife and drum, and takes her in his arm. Again, he honors and adorns her with all his finery, that is, with the blotting out and washing away of sins, with righteousness and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and with his light, knowledge, strength, and all the gifts which belong to that life. These are different chains, rings, velvets, silk, pearls, treasures, and jewels from the earthly ones, which are only a dead picture of those heavenly treasures. Therefore, wherever you see or hear bride and bridegroom or the joy and beauty of a marriage feast, there open your eyes and heart and behold what your loving Lord and Savior presents and shows to you, who prepares a glorious royal marriage feast for you, his beloved bride, a living member if you believe in him. In that is eternal joy, good cheer, singing and springing, eternal ornaments and all riches in the fullness of everything good. Therefore a hearty confidence in him should grow and increase in thee, that he called and chose thee through baptism to his fellowship through his inexpressible hearty love and received thee to release thee from sin, eternal death, and the power of Satan, and imparted to thee his body and life and all that he has. Yea, he so completely gave himself to thee that thou mayest not only glory in what he did for thy sake and gave to thee, but thou mayest comfortably and joyfully glory in him as being thine. And as a bride relies with hearty confidence upon her bridegroom and holds the heart of the bridegroom as her own heart, 
so do thou rely from the depth of thy heart upon the love of Christ, and entertain no doubt that he is not otherwise disposed to thee than as thy own heart is. But this is opposed beyond measure in us by our old Adam, our flesh and blood, our blindness and the stiffness and hardness of our hearts, which does not permit us to see or believe it, especially if we see and experience in ourselves and in this miserable life other things before our eyes and senses. For reason sees and understands it well that the marriage feast and bridal love are in themselves a lovely and cheerful picture, and it may be taught that Christ is a beautiful, noble, pious, and faithful bridegroom, and his church a glorious, blessed bride. But things come to a stop later when everyone is to believe for himself that he is also of Christ and a member of his body, and Christ bears such a heart and love toward him. The reason is that I do not see such excellent glory in myself, but on the contrary, my weakness and unworthiness, and feel nothing but sorrow, sadness, and all kinds of suffering, and even death, the grave and maggots which are about to consume me. But in the face of this, you should learn to believe the word. Christ himself speaks to you, and God commands you to believe that it is true unless you wish to give God the lie, regardless of what you feel in your heart. For if you should believe, you must not cleave to what your thoughts and feelings say to you, but what God's word says, no matter how little of it you may experience. Therefore, if you are a person who feels his need and misery and desires from the heart to partake of this comfort and love of Christ, then incline your ears and heart hither to Christ, and lay hold of this comforting picture he presents to you, wherewith he shows that he will have himself known and believed by you, that he has in his heart a much warmer love and a more loyal fidelity to you than any bridegroom to his beloved bride. And on the other hand, you should have a much heartier and greater confidence and joy in him than any bride has to her bridegroom, so that here you may justly chastise yourself because of your unbelief and say, Behold, can the bridal love cause such hearty confidence and joy between the bride and the bridegroom, which is still of a low order and transitory? Why do I not rejoice much more over my holy and faithful Saviour Christ, who gave himself for me, and to me holy as my own? Shame on me because of my unbelief, that my heart is not here full of laughter and eternal joy, when I hear and know how he says to me through his word that he will be my beloved bridegroom. Should I not much rather have here another, a higher joy, and my eyes, thoughts, heart, and whole life cleave more to my beloved Saviour than a bride to her bridegroom, who, if she is a pious and true bride, sees and hears indeed nothing more gladly than her spouse? Yea, even when she does not see him and he is absent from her, her heart cleaves to him so that she cannot but think of him. However, as I said, it is our old Adam, the corrupt nature, that does not allow the heart to lay hold of this knowledge, joy, and consolation. Therefore it is, and will doubtless continue to be, as St. Paul says in Ephesians 5, a mystery, a secret, deep, hidden, incomprehensible thing, but yet something great, excellent, and wonderful, not only to the blind, foolish world that cannot think or understand anything at all of these high divine things, but also for the beloved apostles and advanced Christians that herein they have enough to learn and believe, and they themselves are compelled to confess how long they labored with it, preached about it, strove after it, and it is to them still a mystery in this life. 
For St. Paul himself often complained that it did not work so powerfully in him because of his flesh and blood, as it should work if it were as fully understood and apprehended as it should be. For he and other saints would not have been so anxious, sad, and terrified as he often was, and the prophet David also lamented in many psalms, but their hearts would have soared in pure joy. However, they will be free from all this in the life beyond, where they will see without any covering and dimness to the vision and be filled with joy and live forever. For the present it remains a mysterious hidden spiritual marriage feast that one does not see with the eyes nor grasp with the reason, but faith alone is able to grasp it, as faith holds only to the word it hears concerning it, and yet grasps it still very weakly on account of our perverse flesh. For this marriage feast is so totally foreign to reason that it is terrified when it thinks how great it is. I speak now still of the Christians, for the others do not come to it. They hold it simply as impossible, yea, as mere talk of fools and of fable, when they hear that God becomes man's bridegroom. But the Christians who have commenced to believe it must be shocked and amazed at its greatness. Dear God, how shall I exalt myself so highly as to boast of being God's bride and God's son my bridegroom? How do I, a poor offensive worm of the dust, come to this honor, which never befell the angels in heaven, that the eternal majesty condescends so very low into my poor flesh and blood, and thoroughly unites himself with me, that he will be one body with me, and yet I am from the sole of my foot to the crown of my head so completely full of filth, leprosy, sin, and stench before God. How shall I then be considered the bride of the high, eternal, and glorious majesty, and be one body with him? But hear well what God desires it to be so. In Ephesians 5 he says, I will dress and place before me a bride who shall be my church. That is glorious. Of the glory I myself have, and not having spot or wrinkle, but holy and without blemish, and so forth, just as I am. He does not speak of a bride that he finds in this state, pure, holy, blameless, without spot, etc. Such a bride he should not seek in the earth, but he should have remained among his angels in heaven to find her there. But he revealed himself through his word to men, surely not for the sake of this life, but that he might be praised forever through her, and therefore he must have had in mind something greater to do with and through her. The great mystery is that he did not take upon himself the nature of angels, but united himself with the human nature. Here on the earth he finds nothing but a corrupt, filthy, shameless, condemned bride of Satan that has become faithless to God, her Lord and Creator, and fallen under his eternal wrath and curse. If he is now to secure here a bride or congregation who, to be sure, must be also pure and holy, otherwise there could be here no union, then he must first and in the highest degree show his love, that he applies his purity and holiness to her sins and condemnation, and thereby cleanses and sanctifies her. This he did so, as St. Paul says in Ephesians 5, in that he gave himself for her, and purchased her by his blood to sanctify her for himself, and besides cleansed and washed her by the baptism of water, and he adds a word which one now hears, by means of the same word and baptism he prepares her to be his loving bride, and praises and claims her to be pure from sin, God's wrath and the power of Satan. Furthermore, does he desire that she esteem herself also as a loving, beautiful, holy, glorious bride of God's Son? 
Here no one sees how excellent a work is accomplished, thus hidden and secretly through God's word, baptism, and our faith. And yet by it the result is accomplished that this company of poor sinful men, who were not worthy to behold God at a distance because of their great filthiness, are made through this bath and washing, clean, beautiful, and holy, so that they are well-pleasing to God as the bride of his beloved Son and as his loving daughter. And this purifying commenced in this life. He develops and continues constantly in her until she is presented to him purer and more beautiful than the light and brightness of the sun. Therefore a Christian must learn to believe this, so that he in the future does not consider himself in the light of his first birth, as he was born from Adam, but as he is called to Christ and baptized into him, and like all Christians confides in and is united with him, so that he should cling to her, him as to her bridegroom, who through the same washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, while they are still unclean, he continually purifies and adorns them until the day he presents his church to himself, not only without a spot or stain, but also without a wrinkle, very beautiful, sleek, and perfect, like fresh youth. Therefore do not be terrified if you feel too entirely unworthy and impure. For if your thoughts are fixed on that, you will forget and lose this confidence and trust in Christ. But you must heed the word Christ speaks to you. Although you are full of sin, death, and perdition, yet you have here my righteousness and life, which I apply and give to you. If you are impure and filthy, you have here the washing of baptism and of my word, through which I wash you and pronounce you clean, and will constantly cleanse you forever and ever until you shall stand before me in all creatures, perfectly beautiful and pure. This he tells us not only through his word, but in order that we might not complain being left without admonition and preaching, he presents it to us in so many different everyday pictures and parables of the wedded love, yea, of the first warmth and fervency between a bride and groom. When we see how both hearts cling to one another, one has joy and pleasure in the other. Here the bride does not fear in the least that her groom will cause her suffering or harm or cast her away, but in hearty affection confides in him, and doubts not he will take her into his arms, sit with her at the table, and give her as her own whatever he has. We should in this also truly know Christ's heart and not allow ourselves to picture him otherwise than we hear and see him both in his own word and in the parables and signs which present him to us, that we may indeed never dare to complain, except of ourselves and of our old Adam, that hinders us in our beautiful joy. For should not man become his own enemy, and only wish that death might soon do away with him, for the reason that he knows not himself, and cannot rightly, as he should, taste and enjoy his great treasure, joy, and blessedness. And so perhaps it might be best for us, except that this life with its temptations, cross, and sufferings is to be the school in which always and daily we more and more learn to know what he is in us and we in him, and in which therefore we also work for this, that we may seize him, even as he ran after us and seized us, and that he fetched and won us for his own with his own sweat and blood. Alas, however, that we are too weak, lazy, and slow thus to run after him in this life. Behold, such is the glorious royal wedding in this kingdom, which Christ calls the kingdom of heaven, and to which we, all of us, bidden and unbidden, Jews and Gentiles, 
come by means of the gospel resounding in all the world, as called by fifes and drums, which, after the manner of the scriptures, are called the voices of the bridegroom and the bride. That is to say, a marriage-like voice or sound and tone that is a token of the wedding and the joys, and is to announce unto everyone such joy and call us thereunto. May our Lord help us. Amen. This has been a presentation of classical Lutheran preaching from the Sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Lenker Collection of 1905, and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.